happy holidays from all of us over here at Centering the Margins, the companion podcast to the book, How to Teach Contentious Issues in the Classroom, by Francisco Ramos, available for $4.99 on Apple Books. As always, I'm Michael Betsecket, and I'm joined today by the author himself, Cisco Ramos, and we are glad you came back. If you're finding us for the first time, welcome. Be sure to check out our previous episodes on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or whatever podcast service you like. This week, we dive headlong into how to constructively analyze debates and take care in facilitation of topics that people have real opinions about. Also, I know we normally release on Tuesdays, but since it's the end of the year, I think Cisco and I deserve a much-needed break. What do you think, Cisco? You know, Michael, I quit until next year, but I'll see you on January 5th. 2021 when we come back. Let's get into today's episode. You'd have these neighborhood watch situations where you see these signs plastered all over the place. And I remember being old enough uh, to finally start asking like, like, gee, that's funny. Why are they necessary? Right. And granted, I'm like a 10, 12, 11 year old kid asking that kind of question in reality, like right. you look around and it's sort of like eventually get to the realization of like, oh, I get it. I get <laughs> it. You know, gotcha. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, that's all I need to know about this particular place or why people feel afraid, essentially, or how right. we're defining safety or who's quote unquote allowed to be here or should be here or who right. are my neighbors, right? These kind of things. Um, it's it's wild, man. It's absolutely wild right now. You're not joking. And I don't, and I don't, like, and I don't blame you for trying to do the HOA thing. By the way, for what it's worth, uh, I get it. I appreciate that. I think it's it's mainly because like if we don't codify ways to not have that happen, mm-hmm. we will inevitably become consumed by what is happening. Yeah, and I think that that's something that. Many a like, I feel like a mini a white moderate liberal will be like, "Hey, you don't have to do that because there's no need for that." And you're like, "No, have you seen the arc of history? Like conquerors who feel that something should be conquered or should be colonized will do just mm-hmm. that without any regard for who's been there previously." Yeah, and like we're seeing that happen in like East Durham, for example, mm-hmm. like. Mm-hmm. I just had a whole conversation about that yesterday. Um, and I'm like, the only way that you stop it is to build the infrastructure yeah. that is the stalwart against it. It does not like, quote unquote, the, the kindness of humanity will not keep it at bay. Nah. Well, I, I mean, I think about this way, man. One of the things I kept thinking about was um, talking to a, a friend of mine. You know, he lives in... Um, a suburb of Richmond, Virginia, right? Very, right. very wealthy little little neighborhood situation. And they definitely have HOAs and whatnot. And I remember talking to him and we were going back and forth. And now granted, him and I disagree on almost everything. You know, we get along, we're nice people, etc. Can't agree on just really just fundamental things about the role of government in society. Right. And so one of the points I kept arguing about with him was, listen, at the end of the day, we don't invest in our people. And like, you know, we can go back and forth about all of these things that are nibbling at the edges. 
Um, but do you think we should invest in people equally, not only in terms of money, but in terms of opportunities and yada, yada, yada. And it became this point where like a light bulb finally went off in this dude's mind where he said, uh, you know, when you say it that way, I agree with you. And I'm like, well, why does it take, you know, what is it about what I just said about investing in people? If we agree that people are the basis upon which our social infrastructure is built, what is it about that that seems like, like, why do you have the reaction that you have, right? If we're talking about, um, you know, being able to access, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to call like a fairly priced home loan that isn't exorbitantly over whatever, um, right. you know, being able to access uh, a decent school, being able to access um, like food. Yeah. Food. Yeah. Fresh food. Yeah. Fresh food. Um, you know, all of these, all of these things that we do every, every single day. Um, why don't we think of that as investing in people? Um, you know, and, and that's sort of where it left off. So when you're telling me, you know, oh, um, you know, how do I say this? Um, this idea that, yeah, there's a certain segment of the population, and, and I would say not even certain, a large segment of the population, and this to go back to something that Baldwin was very, very big on, is that are just trapped in a history that they fundamentally don't understand. Um, and the older I get, the truer that becomes. Because I, I don't want to tell right. you if if you don't know the history of all of these neighborhood watch associations of right, right. I don't know what to tell you. You know, like it is what it is. I didn't invent this thing, but if this thing becomes a tool against which um, a a lot of populations have taken advantage of just to stabilize or better themselves, who've never had access to these kind of things, mm -hmm. I want to tell you. I want to tell you. So. Well, and I think you can go even further and, you know, the, the idea of like suburbs and the use of words like rural and, um, urban, urban, yeah. right. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think that we love to, especially now when it is commonplace to not be able to talk quote unquote candidly about whatever your isms are. Yeah. We were just watching, um, so Ava uh, uh, DuVernay talks about it in 13th and then it comes back up again in John Oliver's discussion surrounding, excuse me, um, like veiled language, like whites, uh, white, basically veiled white supremacy states, rights, those things. Yeah. Uh, and we go and we can cite the statement that Lee Atwater is recorded saying, who was uh, Reagan's chief of chief of staff. Um, and he basically says, and, and I'm just going to quote him directly. He goes, you used to be able to say nigger, 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 nigger. Mm -hmm. And now that's not, you know, that's not politically correct. It's not politically advantageous. So what we do instead is we say things like states rights. We say uh, we really believe in the ability for individual people to have their their sovereignty. Like we say things like that because that is, you know, is veiled one. But two, it becomes this thing that's so abstract. Mm -hmm. But at a certain point, you know, we know what you're getting at when we say we're going to defund certain things. We're going to take away infrastructure within specific black communities and, or within specific communities. And we're going to position it at socio socioeconomic stratas in such a way that it overwhelmingly injures black people. Yeah. And so now we don't have to say nigger, nigger, because we're still getting the same result we were trying to get. Mm -hmm. And like, if that is something that is built into the fabric of a campaign strategist mm -hmm. in the 80s we mm -hmm. have to acknowledge 
the impact of of structural things far before that. We have to talk about the impact of redlining on yeah. communities yeah. and you know the access of generational wealth that that was either a stolen from certain folks yep. or b built on the the labors of other people that were significantly and supremely devalued. And the irony of ironies relative to these vanguards, quote unquote, that they're called, is that they now have started to injure the very same communities that they were built to safeguard. Yeah. Yeah, man. I, I mean, I'm telling you, like, so there's several things. One of them I kept thinking about was, you know, you're talking about, you know, the way language gets abstract and the way that racism gets abstracted, right, on purpose. Right. My, yeah. my, one of my favorite exercises um, is to go back and actually read why Southern states left the Union. Yes. And, and, and they're very unambiguous about it. Um, nope. Yeah, you know, it, it's, it's not, no, no, we, we believe in slavery. Like, like full stop, you know what I, I mean? Truly, like it, it's, nah, you don't believe in that, <laughs> you know, and, and, and it's sort of like, you know, like, well, it, it's really about yada, yada, yada. Okay. Well, according to so-and-so in 1861, yep. as this was passed by the state legislature, this is why this, the state of South Carolina de decided to leave the union. And there's no way around that, you know, there's no rhetorical, right. So people throw up all kinds of, you know, rhetorical dirt to obs obscure and obfuscate the right. obvious. That, that's truly, right. that's truly it. Um, because I think if you look at it um, in the cold light of day, I mean, who could actually uh, justify it? Nobody. Nobody. Well, and I think you you get at something. And actually, that's a that's <laughs> ironically enough, that was a perfect segue into today's discussion. I think that there's a when, when we're talking about how to uh, to debunk a mistruth, right? Because that's yeah. in large part, especially when you are having a conversation that's surrounding a very specific contentious debate, right? You have to analyze how both parties are going to argue. Mm -hmm. um, you have to be able to bring indisputable evidence to the table that. If someone were to, I don't know, say, for example, I want an election outright, uh, it's really difficult to dispute that that's an inaccurate statement. Um, or excuse me, it's really easy to dispute that that's an inaccurate statement by simply pulling out the, I don't know, number of popular votes in states that have greater electoral college numbers mm -hmm. than, you know, you expected to earn and to also pull out. Things like, I don't know, mail-in ballots are some of the most protected and safeguarded mm -hmm. things. If we believe and trust that the IRS can receive our tax returns in the mail, why would we think that mail fraud would be something, excuse me, uh, election fraud would happen through mail in that way? Yeah. Why would we think that um, all of a sudden we're going to have these greater large cases number or large examples of voter fraud that are happening all over the place? Why would we be putting forth an argument to say that there is voter fraud and then asking people, I don't know, before a press conference starts at uh, Four Seasons Total Landscaping, asking folks <laughs> to come out yeah. with examples of said voter fraud so that we can make our case. That seems very cart before the horse. Um, yeah. So, yeah, like I, I think that when we talk about the, the analysis of a, dis of a discussion, of a debate, 
bringing in those those indisputable examples that are rooted in concrete fact you know you can feel however you want to feel but i'm bringing to you evidence yeah. that is rooted in a historical vetted space that we've all quote unquote agreed on prior to this so it's far more difficult for you to dis- discredit the evidence that i'm bringing to you mm-hmm. because it's evidence that we both agreed on prior yeah well i mean i, p- I put it this way I think where we're at now, and I think one of the benefits of of this guidebook, right, is I try to break everything down into its constituent part, individual part, right? And so each of these components, each of these chapters, each of these approaches is a single brick, right? And brick Mm -hmm. by brick by brick, you end up building something that you didn't have before, right? And, you know, one of the... um, basic things that has to be in place is can we actually agree that that we're all looking at the same thing right can we can we agree that this is something that is real that this is a fact and right. you know the, the fancy fancy uh academic term is triangulation can multiple people look at the same thing and agree that this is a brick this is a computer um this blanket is red uh these mm-hmm. these walls are painted blue like whatever right just that basic line agreement um, upon which things like evidence, interpretation, um, and even opinion can be built. And, you know, one of the, and I think there's several thing, things worth pointing out, right, when it comes to that baseline level of agreement. One, um, it is absolutely true that um, people who are um, 50 and above have a higher likelihood of actually sharing and distributing false information online. And and, right. what's, and 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 so this is the part again where like people will say like oh, you know we need to be really really careful about you know what is being shared or what's being posted. My my first thought is always about okay let's take a step back. Do we what's the evidence suggesting you know who is the we in that statement? Who is the we? Is it really right. um, high school students? Is it really college students? Is it? Um, you know, people between, you know, 22 and 35, 35 to 50, 50 and above, no question. Um, there's really good research uh, suggesting that it's folks who are, are, are 50 and over. Um, so it's not coming from young people for the most part. Um, so then it becomes, you know, the, the, what do you do about that, right? right. Uh, so <laughs> this is where I'm very thankful to, to, be, to be really, really candid, where I'm very thankful that, um, I do teach because I can't think of any other environment in the in, in in society where it is possible to constructively discuss any of this stuff. I really can't, right. you know. Um, don't do it on social media because nuance is sort of an afterthought, um, if it's even an afterthought at all. Um, you obviously you shouldn't do it at work, no question. Um, neighbors, it, you know really depends how well you know your neighbors, mainly because there is some research that basically suggests that we know people who are, we are connected with virtually better than the people that are in close, we are in close uh, geographic proximity to, um, because we can self-segregate in all these different ways from where we live physically to where we live virtually. Um, so that's the part again. Um, I think that's where, I try to find the silver lining in the classroom. Like we can do this. We can find basic uh, points of agreement on what um, on what is a fact, right? And how we can go about building this collection of facts that can 
hopefully serve as evidence which can point us to interpretation A, interpretation B. But for the most part, again, um, you know, this this is something that I, I think uh, yeah, I, I think our current circumstances have been manufactured. Definitely. And I think that that's not to try to like link back to the beginning of this discussion. Yeah. But that manufacturing is something that we that's officially baked into our DNA. Like if we want to go back to we can we can have a discussion as to how far back we should go. Right. Mm -hmm. If we decided to um, excuse me, if we decided to go <laughs> back to like 1492, for example, yeah. right, it's a manufacture that that dude shows up with his folks here in the United States thinking that he's landed in a very different place. Yeah. All right. That's all manufactured. It's manufactured that we can't figure out how to get the ground to cultivate. So we'll go and figure out who these, these brown folks over here, we'll get them to do this work. Mm. Uh, it's manufactured that those brown folks don't like being slaves. So we'll go find some that have no idea about where they are. Yeah. It's manufactured as to who's allowed to have uh, voting um, to be a, to be a spokesman for their community. Who's allowed to um, to have a say so? Yeah. Uh, it's manufactured so we can continue to talk about this manufacturing from the origins of time, mm -hmm. and so that's stuff that carries forward and it shows up in the classroom. And so you know, if if we're having a discussion about something that feels you know ever present, yeah, it is because it has not changed over the course of history. And I would imagine that in a classroom, and then this is something I would love to, to really get your full take on. Sure. If we're establishing what a framework even begins to look like, how do we have the basis of a conversation that we know is going to be contentious, that we know we're going to be in spaces of disagreement? Um, and you as the educator are just facilitating, like we've talked about in previous weeks. Totally. How do you get your students to buy into the idea mm -hmm. that there is no such thing as an enemy in the room as you are discussing what you are discussing? How do you get them to buy into the framework? So I always start with, you know, we, we so let me take a step back. So as an educator, I always talk about like what's truly at stake and what we're talking about, right? Um, right. And then connecting it to how is this directly relevant to to us, you know, individually and to us as a, as a learning community. So with what is at stake and with these kind of conversations, I never focus on, and I know we've talked about this in the past where I'm not so much concerned as about, you know, individual specific events or individual issues because there's a litany of events and there's, I don't even know how many issues, probably infinite, right? So, but taking right. a step back and asking these really fundamental questions about um, rights and responsibilities, questions about what is our relationship to institutions, starting with discussions about what is fair, what is right, right. you know, right. And, and, and really saying like, okay, let's take a step back. Let's look at the big picture. Um, and, I, and I deliberately start that way is because um, I think once we start narrowing down what, what it is we're actually talking about, it becomes very easy to lose sight of the, the broader, so what, why is this important? Why is this relevant? How does, you know, truly what, um, what was being discussed in the late 19th century, how was that still relevant today? Right. Um, right. So starting big picture wise in that way, starting to define 
you know, truly what, what are some actual key terms? And now granted, students, I give them a lot of leeway in terms of how conversation goes, but in terms of the actual definitions that are underlying our conversation, uh, they're not up for debate. Um, mm -hmm. What is a fact? What is an evidence? What is opinion? Um, absolutely not. What is a source? Nope, 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 nope. Uh, uh, words like triangulation. Can we all look at this um, event, object, artifact, and say that this is what it, we think it is, it did happen, how do we know, et cetera? Right. Um, and, and starting that way, because I, I think what ends up happening sometimes is if there isn't, if we don't establish guideposts early on in these kind of conversations, if we don't try to come to some common understanding of truly what is our framework, framework of how we treat each other, framework of how we talk about certain things, framework in terms of owning our, the language that we use, um, framework in terms of how we treat one another, of a framework right. for our responsibilities, framework for the invisible stuff that makes cohesion possible. Um, right. I, I, I truly don't know how you, you move on from that. You know, if, right. if that isn't set up as, as you beautifully said, you know, it, it, because it becomes very easy to put, you know, a cart before a horse, we come up with an answer or a solution first, and then try to build the evidence later, which, you know, you know, one of the first things you learn in policy school for, for what it's worth, um, you know, we always talk about the laws of unintended consequences, right? We, we, we talk right. about this a lot because every time there is a policy that's under discussion, whether that's a formal legislation, whether that's taking place in the classroom at, or, you know, something that happens at the school or district level, um, you know, A, do we really have a sense of, of what the problems or problem is slash are? B, if we have what we think is, is a treatment for it or is a solution to it, what are the potential spillover effects? How does it affect uh, people beyond who we think is slash um, are the intended audience? Um, you know, and, and that's something, again, that... Um, I think for a lot of people, we're not very good at. Um, and I say that mainly because just because we're human, it's really hard for us to be consistent. It's really, really right. hard for us to be consistent when it comes to defining certain things, um, being able to, to practice what we actually preach because we're very subjective and it's very easy for us to move goalposts depending on circumstances and then rationalizing why we move certain things in a particular moment, as opposed to taking a step back, establishing certain frameworks before you ever get started on anything. And then as discussions or conversations unfold, being able to go back concretely to that established framework and said, how well does what we're talking about now fit within this framework that we've actually established? Where are we going? Right. 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 Um, right. I mean, I mean, that's truly sort of where I start with any of this, because I don't know how to, um, you know, come up with a framework on the fly that fits in a given scenario, because it's just going to be inconsistent. We're going to be all over the place and we're not building anywhere. We're not going anywhere. It's just, we're just, you know, um, you know, a dog chasing our tail. That's all we are. Right. And it's funny. So in the, in the actual book itself, you say something uh, that I, I really want to just read verbatim here. You sure. say, remember the central point of utilizing this exercise and, and you're referring to the exercise of, of 
building a framework with students mm -hmm. uh, is to empower students to constructively engage with and evaluate debates and issues. For this reason, I developed a straightforward chart, and there's actually some resources that are in the back of the book that you can actually uh, access talking about how to uh, map a debate that you can use in the classroom. So it seems like, you know, it's that moment where the earlier you is smarter than the later you. <laughs> can you can you talk about how this as a resource is actually supposed to to help alleviate some of the stressors of the moment? Absolutely. Um, so one of the if I take a step back and say, like, gee, how did this chart come into being? So essentially, um, it becomes very, very easy to. Uh, when we're discussing something, for all of these different um, ideas, issues, evidences, interpretations to sort of get mashed together. And Ooh, I think in general, right. people aren't very good at disentangling or trying to differentiate these different aspects of a debate and argument as they're unfolding. And part of that, as I mentioned, you know, two seconds ago is that um, there isn't a lot of, for the most part, prior thought on sort of what is our framework? What does it look like? Etc. So this entire idea and these resources are specifically around. Here's a here is a very structured way to help your students understand and see these subtle but important differences. Right. So if right. we're looking at a, a particular issue or debate, um, now I'm 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 a big fan of simplicity. I'm a huge huge fan of um, speaking plainly when it comes to important things so that there's no room for misinterpretation. So spelling out for people very, very cleanly and clearly in a, in a chart, you know, what is a fact? What is an evidence? What is a source? What is an opinion? What does a stakeholder believe is actually at stake? Mm -hmm. Because sometimes depending on where we're coming from, depending what our interests are, we can perceive that what's really at stake is this when someone else in the debate really thinks it's something else. So what often happens is people speak past one another and there's plenty of examples of that. Um, but I also think part of it is teaching students how these arguments, these debates, um, responses are built. And it's right. to, as best as we can take a step back and say, okay, how are these bricks arranged? What purposes do they serve? Why were they constructed this way and not that way? Um, and it's to show at the end of the day, are we really talking about the same thing? Right. And, you know, I think that kind of um, structured facilitation is, again, really, really hard to do. And I would argue is near impossible to do if there isn't some kind of thought brought into what does this look like before I step into it? Because I think once you open the door for students to analyze, students to bring their experiences into dialogue with what the research says. Um, I think you as an educator don't really control uh, the direction of that conversation. You can inform and ask certain questions and maybe ask students to elaborate a little bit more um, or even to think a little bit harder um, about certain aspects of, of things that come up. But you no longer control that as a teacher. It's out of your hands. And so this, I think, gives you a very subtle way of putting forward a framework that you can absolutely reference so that if for whatever reason a conversation or debate uh, goes a certain way, or if there is a question about is this really an evidence or a source, um, 
you can address that in the moment so that again, there is structure um, and you can focus on the process and not necessarily on the outcome. The outcome is going to be sort of what it's going to be um, further down the road. Right. So in, in the book, you, um, you actually use the example of the U Chicago first year letter yeah. about trigger warnings. Mm-hmm. Um, why did you feel like this particular discussion was one, uh, most accessible to the conversation surrounding contentious discussions and mm-hmm. contentious conversations in this way and analyzing debate, but two, why did you find that this was the most salient for like setting up the quote unquote first framework that your students would be kind of using to, to kind of work through some stuff for themselves the first time in your class. Does that make sense? I, I think yeah, that yeah, yeah, no. <laughs> it does. It does. So I'll start with like big level. Why, why this whole um, free speech debates at the university of Chicago um, as an example. So in 2000, I believe it was 2016 Jay Ellison, who is a Dean of students at the university of Chicago sends out a letter um, to incoming freshmen that was very much um, about the importance of free speech and about trigger warnings, um, the importance of civil dialogue, and provides a couple of resources around um, the history of free expression as well as um, and freedom of speech at the University of Chicago. Um, and my understanding is that this letter was entirely uh, unprompted. It was just sent to the incoming freshman class. Um, and, you know, it, it's one of these things where, um, you know, with senior leaders at you know, colleges and universities, there are certain folks within universities where if they say something, it becomes policy. And for such right, a high-ranking right. person to, to put forward a very public letter to incoming students, at least initially, it's interesting, right? Like, okay, there's a certain position that's being taken here. You know, exactly. What, what comes out of it? I don't know, but it's taken. So shortly thereafter, um, in September, initially it was, um, there was a undergraduate student named Sophie Downs who responded to this letter uh, in the New York Times, basically saying there's a great article it's called Trigger Warning, Safe Spaces, and Free Speech Too, that responds to Ellison's letter and says, you know, um, there's certain inconsistencies. Trigger warnings don't actually mean this. They mean this. They came out of a specific time, um, specific uh, time and place. Um, she breaks down the importance of safe spaces to even, you know, really having to define what is a trigger warning. And, you know, I'm... You know, a trigger warning is pretty simple. It consists of a professor saying in class something to the effect of the reading for this week includes a graphic description of, and Downs' example was a sexual assault, or of a note of a syllabus that reads, quote, this course deals with sensitive material that may be difficult for some students. And so it's this entire public uh, discussion, really, of what does free speech look like on campus? And then the third example that's drawn into this particular conversation was um, a faculty response to, to Allison's letter. So it's one of these very few moments where you not only have the perspective of a very senior figure um, within a very prominent university, you right. have the student's perspective, and then you have the faculty's perspective. And what's interesting in taking this kind of framework and applying it through these concrete examples 
is that each party understands, a, you know, truly, what do they consider a source to be a little bit different? The evidence that they draw upon is a little bit different. The conclusions they arrive to are a little bit different. Um, so you have this broad umbrella of this is what free speech looks like on college campuses. And of course, when people hear free speech, they sort of go to their respective camps. But I think once you um, look beneath the surface just a little bit and look at how each entity is framing and understanding um, free speech as it unfolds on a campus, very different perspectives on each side. So then it right. becomes, um, are they really talking to one another? Are they really talking past one another? Right, right. And so you get into these dynamics where, again, um, you know, why a college and university, as I said, there aren't that many places in society where where things are are discussed constructively. There just aren't. Um, so this is a really, really good example. It's a recent example, and I think it's still a very salient example of, you know, even in places where higher learning is um, highly valued, these differences do play out in a that you might see in the public sphere, but they play out in a slightly different way. And I think you can take these examples and make them constructive and teaching students how to analyze and understand so that these subtle but important differences um, not only are accounted for, but help inform where students ultimately end up in terms of their opinion on, on something. So, man, there's so many different directions I want to go in. I want to ask you one quick question that's sure. kind of a jaunt off of the pedagogical scene it's not too far it's it's still within but it's it's not directly germane to the conversation of frameworks sure and i i am curious uh noting the existence of students who aren't wealthy white men yeah how does the interaction of a trigger warning kind of need to exist in space i i think of it this way right um The word that comes to my mind immediately is power, right? Mm -hmm. um, whose stories get told, whose stories get remembered, um, what entities are funded, uh, power, right? What gets remembered, what gets deliberately forgotten, what's left right. out of a book so that eventually it is forgotten. Um, you know, that certainly comes to, my, comes to the forefront of my mind because, you know, trigger warnings, and this and trauma um, right. are tied to the hip with one another. Um, and so mm. when we think about, and I'm, and I'm saying for the most part, because certainly it's, it's way more complicated than what I'm about to say, but um, who are the most traumatized folks, historically speaking, in the United States, right? Um, what are those histories? Um, right. How have they played out? How have they changed? Um, how were they debated? Now, right. granted, the only th the one example I would can offer is, you know, there was this one, of a, and it certainly comes up in other points of the guidebook, but um, the way that power expresses itself, the way that trauma sometimes manifests on campus is are you a reliable narrator of your own lived experience mm. is a big one. Um, for the most part, for a lot of people, the answer has been no. 
two very famous examples, and I'm not going to elaborate too much because it comes up later, was with um, in a in a later chapter on anti-racism about uh, healthcare uh, discussions on healthcare and Beyonce and Serena Williams almost dying because their doctors just didn't believe them. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and it, you know they're very famous, very wealthy, very powerful, very successful black women. Um, but even for them, are you a reliable narrator? Um, Hey, the doctor didn't believe him in that moment and look what almost happened, you know, and I can't imagine for a lot of poor first generation underserved, and I would argue overlooked students, um, that dynamic is probably way more exacerbated and in their face. And so, you know, there, there's sort of two dynamics that are in tension with one another. Um, on one hand, um, you know, this history of being overseen, overlooked, trying to tell your story and establishing a premise, I would argue a premise for your own existence. And then on the other hand, um, you know, it's a very old, um, idea and I'm escaping the name. Um, I believe it's uh, Spivak, uh, you know, can the subaltern speak? I think is a, is a, is the famous question. I might be missing the name, but it's certainly an article called, can the subaltern speak? I think the flip side of that question is, um, are the subaltern heard? And I think that's the rub, right? Like who has the power to actually hear and incorporate? Um, right. Right. I, I, I don't know, you know, I, but I think the trigger warning trauma storytelling, who gets heard and honestly, who deliberately doesn't hear, um, mm. you know, I can only speak for my own from my own experiences that, uh, you know, every time there is uh, some kind of tra- training session around diversity and inclusion, it's usually with the same kind of crowd, the same people who are very, very supportive. But the question always becomes in, in most of those sessions as well, the people who need to be here the most aren't here. Right, right. It's, it's that same basic idea applied a different way. So, um, and let me look up this name. I wanna make sure I'm telling you right. It is, it is Spivak. Okay. Thank you. Uh, yeah, thank yeah. you. I would, <laughs> I want to make sure I, 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 I didn't want to interrupt you, but it yeah. is feedback. I so, just sent you the actual. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. It, it's, it's a, it's a, I'll be honest with you. It's a very hard reading. I have tried. There are certain concepts and ideas and the way that some people approach. And I'm just like, it's so brilliant. I, I appreciate you. I can't get get past this certain point. I don't know what you're talking about, but I think I do. But I, I'm not. I'm going to try to be a little more humble and not right. say that I fully do because right. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. But I I, think, I will I will tell you. Like I think that for for those who are listening right now, there is nothing better than hearing a PhD say that they don't understand something. That, <laughs> it just tells me that I may be somewhere in the ballpark of like a correct understanding of how difficult this thing that you're talking about may be yeah. sometimes. And I, and, 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 and I mean, and, and again, we're jaunting off to another place, a small, a small step off, but you know, there, I just think that in the world of, of academia, it's, it's really helpful to hear people say mm, that one was difficult for me to digest. Um, and especially as two like two black and Brown people who have terminal degrees, like, I think it's helpful for us to be like, yeah, we don't understand all of these things all the time, because I do believe kind of going back to that conversation earlier that you were saying, as far as like these 
oftentimes overlooked, marginalized students who are not, you know, from families of exposure where they had an opportunity to digest stuff like this super early. Um, it is really helpful to know, like, yeah, it's it's not as easy as we think it, we want it to be, Mm-mm. and that's okay. Like, mm-hmm. you clearly got what the auspice of the article was after. Yeah, like <laughs> otherwise you wouldn't <laughs> have brought it up. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, and and I will say this, right? And I'm quoting. I love to quote people because I think I, I I'm attracted to people, and I read a lot about people who love to think because. If I can get closer to asking the right question regarding right. a lot of things that I really care about, I think the right question is more important than the answer. Um, but there's a really famous philosopher named Bertrand Russell. His whole thing was, um, I'm paraphrasing, you know, the whole problem with the world is that fools and fanatics are always so certain of themselves and wiser people are so full of doubts. And I think right. part of that is... Um, you know, man, there's nothing I think that is more interesting and scary that someone is so confident and firm and will put forward universal claims without paying attention to context or histories, or we'll just flat out say, this is right under all circumstances. And I'm like, you know, if if you really mm. scratch beneath the surface and looked at a little at certain things, you'd realize pretty quickly um, how limited our faculties are, where answers begin to fail us, when experience begins to fail us. um, And we have to doubt so many things, not because, you know, we have to start doubting things mainly because, again, we hit our limitation. And beyond that, I think that's where humility enters the picture. Right. So. As always, a phenomenal setup. Um, <laughs> <laughs> just kind of you, you do a great job of like, so I was one of your students and I, I know that our listeners have heard me say that multiple times, but I, I want to reiterate that the thing that I'm about to talk about is from personal experience within the classroom based off the context of the discussion. So it's always uh, a framing so that people understand where I'm coming from. So you have us read all of these letters, or you have certain folks read certain letters within the classroom uh, relative to Dean Ellison's letter to the incoming first years, right? Mm -hmm. And not everybody reads the same perspective. Everybody's reading different perspectives. Yep. Um, And it pushes us into a place where we have to basically defend something that, one, we may not actually agree with. Mm -hmm. Um, But ultimately... What's funny is after you've read that letter and you start the discussion, even though you have the text in front of you, you may begin to not believe the words that you supposedly have gotten yourself to believe you believe. Mm. You've started to adjust your position. You start to to be put into a position or into a space where you're like, well, maybe I'm not understanding this thing correctly. You start to to doubt yourself. And at several um classmates who did the same thing, who were groupmates of mine, I did it. um, Because ultimately, you know, that idea of more information, allowing Mm -hmm. us to be able to change our position. um, That's what this this whole exercise is kind of indicative of. And it's part of the reason why the framework is so important, right? Like, (laughs) yeah, Yeah, because it's really like, when was the last time, and, and I'm being tongue in cheek on this, but when was the last time somebody presented you with evidence? And we're like, you know what? I changed my mind. You're right. 
no, you're absolutely right. You know, I, I happen to, I, you know, you're not wrong. Like, I, it's, it's very rare. <laughs> you know, and, and, we, and we go on and on as researchers. And, and to be frank, it's an open question research-wise. But I think if you asked your neighbor, when was the last time somebody changed your mind on mm. something, about something mm. that really mattered to you? I, I think people would be hard-pressed to come up with a scenario. And my, my next step would be, why do you think that is, right? Because oftentimes we can be presented with um, facts, with evidence, with research, with numbers saying that another approach is better or more effective or more useful, or there's a, the word efficacy. I don't really like that word, but long-term efficacies. Um, <laughs> but yeah, you can hear that. I'm just like, come on, man. Like you're such a, you're such a researcher and you're a salty one at that. And it's uh, yeah. one of the things I like about you, my friend. <laughs> well, no, <laughs> because, okay, let me take a step back. One of the reasons why I don't like how a lot of academics write is that it's very inaccessible. It's yes. very, it's very inaccessible. Like, like, come Reach. on, like <laughs> you can say something, you know, it has a high level of advocacy. Great. What does that mean? Right. What, what does that mean? How does that apply? How are you going to convince, um, you know, specific communities or populations that you're working with? I don't, I'm not interested per se. And is this really significant at the 0.95 level, the 0.99 level? I'm not, I don't care. Truly don't care. Can you break this down into a very digestible, digestible way so that somebody who doesn't have literally a decade's worth of training can read this right, right? right. that right. that that that's where that's coming from i i have a huge problem with how um academics write in a very convoluted way that is inaccessible to the vast majority of people i just i got a beef with it um, I don't even remember what I was talking about. It's just that's one you're of those. You're talking things. about the last time someone <laughs> changed your mind. Yeah, you're like, okay. when was the last time someone changed your Thank mind? Thank you. Thank you. Pop my memories. Um, but that's but that but that's no. We stood it. on a soapbox for a second. That's what yeah. That was. That, that's what that was. Um, <laughs> but when was the last time, right, that somebody presented you with evidence and you didn't um, immediately have a knee jerk reaction? That you sat there, you thought about it for a minute. And said, under what circumstances could this be correct or false? Not apply, apply. What are the merits of it? You know, that, that's the thing that I, one of the things that I think is, is lost. If, if it truly ever existed, um, you know, that, that I think is, is something that a classroom can provide are those moments right. where I know you're going to disagree with something. I want you to weigh the merits of it. Make right. an argument as to why approach A, approach B, policy A, policy B, this perspective, that perspective could actually be right under what circumstances right. um, and try to shift away from the generalizations and these loud proclamations that are often made that they sound great, but don't really hold up to, to anything more than you know, a soundbite. Right. It's not the point. Well, That's not the point of the classroom. Exactly. Exactly. And, and I think that you even go even further in your classroom. You had us embody the thing that we were talking about. We, you split the room where we had to stand on a side of the argument 
And then we had to actively debate mm-hmm. as to why we held that position. And you then gave us the ability because we were pre-assigned our positions. You gave us the ability to then show what our active position was as, you know, individuals mm-hmm. yeah. within that space. So we had to move to the other side of the room or we had to stand in the middle or we had to whatever we were doing in that moment in time. Mm-hmm. And and because of having to do that, we had to make some decisions internally about how we were coming at this information. Yeah. And then we had to concede points that had been made that were actually in either direct opposition to a point that we were attempting to make or that up- upheld a point that we hadn't thought about. Yeah. And I loved that because we constantly were in conversation trying to understand the our positionality relative to the conversation rather than whether or not it's a right or wrong position to have. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and I think with, again, many of these things, the general idea behind that approach is the fact that we're talking about contentious issues or debates, there are no right or wrong answers. Right. I mean, that, that is something that I, I think gets lost in the shuffle. Um, there are no right or wrong answers. A lot of it's gray. And I think like, uh, like many things in life, uh, what do you do with that? How do you begin to come to an understanding, um, not only with yourself and where you are and how you relate to an issue or those around you, um, but I think collectively, where do you stand? How do you come to an understanding? And I think something that I was thinking about even this morning is, um, you know, in that investigation, um, what becomes truth? What becomes mm. what becomes knowledge? Um, mm-hmm. Is it really a capital T truth? Do we think there is something universal that is binding all of this stuff together, or is it really a smattering of lower T truths? Mm. Um, now, I'm a I'm a person that believes that there are universals that exist. I believe reality, and I and I do mean I I believe right. It is right. It it is hard to say. Uh, philosophically speaking. Um, and, you know, those can bind us. Um, right. But again, the, that is very much uh, what's at stake. Right. Is well, it and I, it, capital T knowledge? Same kind of thing. Is it a, a capital K or a lowercase K? Um, right. And I have a, and we can talk about this further. Um, I believe there's capital T's. I believe there's lowercase K's knowledge. Um, Right, right. Yeah. I I think one of the reasons that you and I work in similar spaces is I think we we believe that together. Um, And I would argue, I would also argue that the point of establishing a framework and the point of establishing a structure and defining terms of fact, evidence, source, and opinion is so that we is because we know that a vast majority of people are going to have those capital T's and those capital mm-hmm. K's or those lowercase D's and those lowercase K's. Mm-hmm. And we have to be able to objectively establish when we run up against one of those things. Yeah. Yeah. We, and, and we have to be able to, to deconstruct them and right. to interrogate them and to differentiate. And I think this is something that, a lot of people struggle with. And I, I think this speaks to the um, 
to the emotional intelligence of being an educator, and it's really, really tough, is um, to somehow do this but not personalize it. Right. I right. mean, I mean, it's it's very you know, for 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 certain people, I think once you start talking about an idea or something, a position they hold or a belief, it can be conflated as because you're analyzing or trying to understand or ask questions of a belief, you're really asking questions of me. Right. Right. And, and those are, in my mind, those are two separate things. Um, and I, I would put it this way. Um, if I can explain where I'm coming from, the beliefs that inform actions, thoughts, writings, whatever, um, I have a stronger understanding, not only of myself, but of why this is, um, uh, how I'm approaching certain things. And I think quite frankly, um, I think it's healthy to interrogate where we are. Oh, undoubtedly, undoubtedly. Um, because if there's certain things that, and, and there's plenty of examples of this, certain truths that were obvious 150 years ago that turned out to be absolutely false because time, culture, our understanding of ourselves shifted in a dramatic and I think positive way. Um, so, you know, beliefs in and of themselves, um, they do evolve. Right, right. Well, and, and as we get more information, they evolve too. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I think that that is, I mean, prime example, let's look at something uh, like the health crisis that we're in right now. Mm -hmm. The way that we responded in March mm -hmm. to, you know, at what point do you go to the hospital? Yeah. And the way we respond now as to at what point do you go to the hospital? Those two things are not the same. There has been evolving information or mm -hmm. evolving uh, practice because we have greater information now. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, I, I would, I would, I would say this um, in response, right? Um, there's more information. I, I always approach it as how do people act with respect to the trade-offs of their actions, right? So if we go back to March, you know. Almost every single day on the news, it's something to the fact of infection rates are going through the roof, lockdowns, the economy is tanking, et cetera. Right. Um, the numbers are worse now. Yes. You know, I'm, you know, I'm from El Paso. I can tell you right now, I literally described El Paso, you know, as a very quiet war zone in that infections are through the roof. They're bringing in extra, um, for lack of a better word, refrigerators to hold bodies. The hospitals, mm. man, if you, <laughs> unless you are truly sick, they're not going to take you. They're flying people to different hospitals right. in different parts of the state or neighboring states to get treatment. Right. Yet in the face of this objective reality, from in the face of the stories we're being told by the doctors and nurses who are working under conditions I can't even fathom. Um, right. Look how, pe how people are acting. Right. right. So, so how do, you know, the actions with respect to trade-offs, people somewhere along the line said, you know what, I'm willing to roll the dice with my own health and the health of those around me. And, right. you know, that's the part of me, again, I don't think it's necessarily as much information. I think there's certainly a question of, and I mean, it's this crazy, complicated intersection of 
yeah, we take in information. Yes, there's data. Yes, there's research. Yes, there's beliefs. But I think there's this other component that is um, much slippery, slipperier to get our, there it is. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Words, words. It's harder to put our finger on, um, but it has to do with human nature, right? Oh, definitely. Definitely. I mean, I mean, like, like, I, I don't know what you do with that other than like, yeah, we, we know better. We know that our sense of for the longest time, what it meant to recover meant just to not die. We know that our understanding of the virus has gotten better. We know that, you know, the numbers are through the roof and, and are projected to be way worse than they ever were um, back when we first learned about this. And yet people still go out. People don't yeah. like it's a debate. Choose not to wear a mask. Actively yeah. choose not to. Yeah. So again, that's the part again. I I think there's this complicated intersection that I think has been more front and center now for educators um, right. a, that is present in the classroom because um, it becomes harder to establish the foundation for these kind of conversations um, simply because... Well, and, go ahead. Go, I was going to say, and the, the outside world has pushed in so dramatically. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's pushed in so dramatically. And, you know, the very, at least the idea of learning that I had growing up was um, uh, learning is supposed to make you uncomfortable. Right. You know, if you're engaging with what you don't know, that's good. That's really, really good. Um, and, and right. I, you know, right. and it just, I've hit the limits of, of what I know. And I am crawling through stuff to, to learn how to do something I didn't know how to do before. And then I am going to crawl through some more stuff to build on top of that, you know? Um, right. So that's the part I, I you know, learning is uncomfortable. It's hard. And I'm like, yeah, it's supposed to be. I want to tell you, like, there's no way around certain things other than learning is hard. It takes time. And, you know, the, yeah. <laughs> a lot of things that we've taken for granted are certainly um, uh, a lot of people think they're up for debate. And it's like, that's our reality now. Unfortunately. Right. Right. And I, and I think that that's, again, this is where we go back to when we're having the discussion. I, and for the listener out there, I'm sorry that we are like driving home uh, a, a point into utter oblivion, but establishing the differences between a fact, evidence, a source, and opinion yeah. will give you greater latitude when having a discussion about something that feels that it should be objectively slippery. It yeah. should be... Uh, open to interpretation some things are not open to interpretation mm-hmm. you know uh and, and part of that is why like comedians can make jokes for example about you know if you take you know you know advil is 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 okay but if you take 15 of those mugs it'll be your last headache like we can make <laughs> that joke yeah because we objectively understand what an overdose is mm-hmm. that's why that joke is funny mm-hmm. and so in the same space, we have things that have definitive, like there's no turning back. When someone is gone, you cannot bring them back. Yeah. So that's an objective reality that has a fine a, a, a finality to it. Um, I mean, I, I mean, I I wouldn't even. I mean, I, I think of it this way, man. Again, it's a sensibility thing, right? Like, if you were to ask, and this would be an interesting question, and I could imagine 
it wouldn't go over well. If you pulled a whole bunch, <laughs> if you pulled a bunch of people anonymously, right? Again, something right. that's established. Are all people created equally? Oh my gosh! Yeah, no. You, you know what I yeah. mean? But like, there, there's yeah. certain, there's certain things where it, it's sort of like, you know, I just I don't even you know that that doesn't end well. We we could argue that 72 million people would answer no to that. Mm-hmm. Almost 73 million people would answer no to that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, and, and it's, you know, I was telling someone uh, earlier today, you know, it's, it's hard to, it can sometimes, and I think there are two parts to this conversation. I think it directly relates to the guidebook and, and to educators. It right. can sometimes feel like you're talking about very difficult things and like you're coming across as always being cynical, right? Mm-hmm. I always take the perspective of, listen, in order to get to the other side, whatever whatever the other side looks like to to use poetic language to reach beyond my imaginative horizons, yada yada yada, to find a solution, <laughs> I have to know what the facts are. I have to know right. what the context is. I think it would be a it would be very very foolish to presume otherwise and proclaim that I have somehow found a solution to this really really hard. Um, this hard discussion or issue without this broader understanding. One of the things that history gives us, and this is where, again, I love the liberal arts. I'm a trained, my undergraduate degree is in history. I love, 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 love ambiguity because, you know, one of the central things of history are the themes of change and continuation. What really changes, right. what really stays the same. Um, and, and we don't know, we don't know. You know, that's that's really hard for people to accept. What was really, you know, for example, um, in American society, who really won the Civil War? Well, it's like, well, on the battlefield, yeah, we know. Culturally speaking, yeah, we're still fighting that, right? Exactly, exactly. But like, so what, in, in what respect? Yeah, sure, things have changed. Certain things are certainly still the same. Uh, certain elements of what was going on in the late 19th century have evolved and certainly things have gotten better. Um, but it's not like everything is fixed. It's so, it's sort of like, I need to have that understanding and that, um, that hindsight to make sense of where I'm at so that if I'm working towards something, um, Mm -hmm. whether that's a solution, whether that's a particular outcome, um, that I have that in the back of my mind so that I know what to do, what to learn from, what other people have tried. Right. Um, and the hope is to get there. But it requires that you are rooted in what happened so you can figure out what's going on. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that's something that, you know, as we're talking about these these uh, discussions of, 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 of ideas that we know definitively are going to be contentious, mm-hmm. uh, it has to be rooted. And I keep coming back to it, it has to be rooted in, in, a, in a fact. It has to be rooted in, in uh, and we have to agree on the source. We have to yeah. agree that, you know, X person who says this thing, you know, if, if I, I have a friend of mine who has always joked um, that he wanted to nickname um, his dog science. Huh. Yeah. So that he could say according to science and then say whatever crazy thing he wanted to say. <laughs> <laughs> and he would be talking about his dog, but yeah, you know, 
uh, it has to be able to be rooted in something. Um, and I think that that function of the root is kind of the thing that we're, we're arguing right now over. Mm -hmm. We, we have lived a lot of time, um, especially within the academic world. We've lived a lot of time having accepted what the root looked like. Yeah. And part of that is due to the fact that there weren't enough people interrogating the root because they benefited from the root being what it was. Yeah. And now you have more individuals who are involved actively saying, I disagree with where we started this thing. Mm hmm. And so that is what's causing the problems. I mean, I'm sorry to make to keep coming back to uh, popular actions that are occurring within the political sphere, but to yeah. say something in the effect of, you know, to understand anti-racism is markedly un-American. Well, then if we look at the inverse of that, then that means to understand racism is to be American. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> Mm-hmm. So, so, so in these objectivities that we're or, or attempting to build, we actually like, and, and I think this is something that Nicole Hannah Jones asks and people like uh, Lewis Raven Wallace talk about, mm-hmm. you know, they're always talking about what is objectivity? Is that actually something that we are privileged to have? Um, are we supposed to, you know, if, if, for example, there was a, uh, a universal court yeah. Right. So there's a billion other species that live all throughout the the universe. Yeah. And, you know, the earth has one representative who goes and is an earthling to that space. Yeah. And that person is supposed to represent everybody on planet earth. Mm. Does that person's existence like is in, in, say, for example, all of the Martians or whomever decide they want to talk about something that is devastating to earthlings in humanity yeah. as we understand it. Is that a person supposed to like be quote unquote like objective in their responses? Or are they supposed to be able to say like, Hey, that thing that you're talking about actually impacts real lives. It's yeah. not just a decimal point. Yeah. Um, and so I think that that's the, that's part of this interrogation. Right. And, and, and I think that's part of what your class is getting at. How do we ask these questions without, without, while giving people the liberty to still be humans but also to interrogate themselves simultaneously. Yeah. I mean, cause that, that, I mean, if, if we don't know our ourselves, I think we're in a world of trouble uh, because oh, yeah. there, there, there is no, there is no guiding light. There is no compass. There is no direction. Um, you know, and, and I think truly that's, that's what get lo- That's what gets lost. I mean, one of the things, uh, one of the brilliant things about the 1619 project um you know, there are some really foundational questions. You know, what does it mean to be an American? Right. What What, what is our common historical um, reference point? You know, and, and this is something, again, as I've been thinking about a lot uh, recently, and as I imagine a lot of people have, um, you know, where there's a lot of blowback because um, it's a well-crafted project. It's beautifully researched. And it just asks people to imagine, what if it's really not 1776? What if it's really 1619? Right. Um, you know, in, in my own work, and I know we've spoken a lot about this offline um, quite a bit, where, you know, for, I spent five years um, researching my family's history, wrote a, wrote a manuscript, put together a family tree, looked up all kinds of documents. And, you know, we mentioned 1492, we could talk about 
you know, these other points in time. And, you know, it's like asking, well, really, where does America begin? Is it really um, 19th century when Texas becomes Texas? Um, No. Well, you know, my family's been in the borderlands for 400 plus years now, barely. You know, I think uh, 15, 15, 20 something. So it's approaching... Wait, is it really almost 500 years? Wow, I had a moment there. <laughs> but it, but it becomes a, it becomes a story where like yeah they've they've literally been in El Paso, Ciudad Juarez, in northern Mexico for so long, and you're around buildings um, these old you know along the Spanish Mission Trail that are way older than than the United States. Um, so where does America begin? You know, and and that's the part that makes a lot of people uncomfortable because we're taking something that was um, taken for granted and right. we're asking questions of it, you know, and, and to push even further, um, you know, I think that's why we see a lot of responses that we do, why, you know, there are people are willing to actively fight um, sometimes literally um, over that line of questioning because it's embedded with notions of identity notions of power um, and one's place in the world. And, you know, we brought it up, I think last time, you know, who are you if the, if the basic things and the basic pillars upon which your history and identity are built upon turn out to be false. Mm-hmm. What do you do with that? Right. Right. What, what, right. Do you, what do you do with that? And that's the part again, where we can say in, in the macro and very abstract sense, you know, what do you do with that? But I think in the classroom, um, you know, that kind of dynamic plays out when people's life histories intersect with research and practice, because what you tell yourself is one thing, but when what you tell yourself rubs up against and grates against, or is graded by what the research actually says, um, mm-hmm. that is an interesting space, I think, for people to be in. And I think that's where comfort and discomfort truly begin in a classroom. I agree. I agree. Uh, and I think that like, I, I'm always a fan of, of comfort and discomfort and not for the sake of being, not for the sake of being a fan of comfort or discomfort. Yeah. I'm a fan of comfort and discomfort because of the refinement that can come from it. If we are willing to continue to ask the question. Yeah. So, you know, I come from a, a background, um, that is that is uh markedly um christian like mm-hmm. that is the background that i come from yeah um and i have asked a lot of questions relative to faith-based practices and things of that nature and some of the best advice that was ever given to me was it is okay for you to seek questions or to have questions and to seek answers mm. but do not stop seeking until you have your answers yeah and I think that when we talk about racial identity development, when we talk about understanding political engagement therein, when we talk about um, you know, you know, being able to come to terms with having benefited or been stepped on or whatever yeah. from the the auspice of history, I think that if we are comfortable in that discomfort, we actually do two big things. Hmm. We expand and stretch our ability to stay in that space mm. 
and we get far more deep reaching answers yeah. the longer we're there. Yeah. I I'm I'm nodding my head. The <laughs> <laughs> I'm nodding my head because you know one of the one of the very profound um insights I had when I was, you know, the family history project and I'm looking at obscure names and old Spanish documents that at least I would call them chicken scratch because it takes a long time to orient your eyes around uh, what's actually written on the page. Right. Was, can you imagine going through all of this work and unlearning what one of the benefits that I've really am starting to embrace right now is not having just feeling that kind of weight and feeling free. Um, I mean, I think that's one of the things that, that people don't, a lot of people, you know, will, will say we, we want to be free. I want to be myself. I want to be authentic. And I'm like, I, I don't know of another way to get there other than asking these really, really hard questions. Because at the end of the right. day, at the end of the day, you have to come to your own conclusion about and understanding, and you have to arrive there by yourself because no one else is going to do it for you about right. what these certain things mean, how they affect you. And where do you want to go from here? And so, you know, we, I just, I just, you can't, I can't even describe to you like the weight that's been lifted from my shoulders personally. I used to have a really big chip on my shoulder because certainly there were structural things that were working against me. Certainly, um, we can talk a lot about racism and the way that it affects us both, uh, both structurally and personally. We can talk about, uh, economic things and policy things, yada, yada, yada. But the privilege of having crawled through so many difficult questions and wrestling with them and to feel light, you know, not weighed mm -hmm. down to, to feel like I am in ownership and in control of my own life. Like, you know, it, it, and it's, you know, we, and I take this approach because, you know, we started talking about this from the classroom's perspective. I'm right. approaching all of this as saying like, yeah, 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 classroom is the introduction to more profound change that we can't exactly. see. And this is something, again, I think for a lot of folks, there's a heaviness to our shoulders and there, there's just a heaviness to, in, in so many ways where we just, we feel bogged down and my question is always like, well, what if you just didn't have to carry it around anymore? Yeah. To put it down and to keep living the best life that you can with the time that you have with the people who really care about you. Right. Wouldn't, that, wouldn't that be nice? It'd be amazing. Um, amazing. Yeah. All right, my friend. I feel like, I mean, in for our listeners today, this particular episode is very... Um, much about the application. I mean, we're going to spend a lot of times talking about structures and frameworks and, and um, theory, you know, later within this, uh, this podcast, but this particular um, episode uh, had a lot more, how do you put it in practice attached mm -hmm. to it? Um, and so just, I'm very grateful to you always, you know, Cisco for just being comfortable to, to kind of go with where the conversation is going. <laughs> yeah. Um, and uh, 
yeah um i don't know is there anything you want to leave our listeners with today i mean the only thing i got is just don't be afraid to ask and grapple with the question um i appreciate you too michael i know um this certainly is an interesting space to be in um but i think you know it's completely worth it because um on many fronts but i think at the end of the day it's this creating community it's about unlearning it's about democratizing it's about things that are way more important than any single individual um so I appreciate today's conversation and I hope folks get something useful out of it. Gmail account. Okay. G unit mail. <laughs> How is there not a G unit mail? I feel like that should have been something that happened along the way. <laughs> That's someone like I feel like Russell Simmons dropped the ball there. Like that's who I'm blaming for this. This is I'm gonna write a book called Bad Business Ideas. (laughs) Here's a bad business. (laughs) Right? Email. There's no actual keyboard, it's just emojis, right? Oh my gosh. (laughs) Thank you for tuning in to Centering the Margins. If you liked what you heard, you can rate, review, and subscribe. To Centering the Margins on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. Be sure to check back next Tuesday for the new episode. In addition, be sure to go pick up Cisco's new easy read, How to Teach Contentious Issues, a practical guidebook for educators on Apple Books. Hey, Cisco, tell us a little bit more about that 30%. Absolutely. 30% of all proceeds will be donated to Durham Children's Initiative. Durham Children's Initiative's mission is to create a pipeline of high-quality services spanning from birth through college and career for children and families living in Durham, North Carolina. There are more than 65 partner organizations and thousands of community members who actively contribute to the initiative. It takes a village, and we at Centering the Margins want to make sure that the village is still here post-COVID. Please go find and buy the guidebook on Apple Books. Your money's going to a great cause. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next week. I put on pants for this, okay? I'm here. (laughs) (laughs) I put on pants. (laughs) (laughs) pants.